This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you with the help of small contributions donated by listeners like yourself. To see how you can support the show, go to www2podcast.com slash support. For those who already support the show, keep listening. At the end, I have details of a free prize draw and your name will be in the hat. Hello and welcome to another World War II podcast. I'm Angus Wallace. In this episode, we'll be looking at how Britain found the manpower to fight the war. By the end, at least four and a half million had served from Britain. And if we add to that figure, Empire and Commonwealth forces, we're looking at perhaps upwards of 10 million. It's an astounding figure. I'm joined by Roger Broad. Roger's new book, Volunteers and Pressed Men, looks at recruitment during both the First and Second World War in both Britain and its empire. Thanks for joining me. Shall we start by looking at the British Army? I I guess the First World War set the pattern for the rapid expansion in 1939 onwards. Um, without picking over uh, World War I, uh, what, what lessons came out of that war? It depends on what level. At the popular level, both in Britain and what by, by 1939 were known as the Dominions, the lesson which a very large number of people had learnt was to try and keep out of the army. <laughs> yeah, well, presumably in a similar vein, the generals during World War II would have learnt from their uh, First World War experience um, when they would have been junior officers, um, such as Montgomery, and would be would be mindful of casualties and the need to conserve the manpower and not uh, waste it fruitlessly. Absolutely. Now, in Britain, the conscription, of course, came in immediately in, 19, in September 1939, and the provision of the act uh, had two important provisions. One was that men could opt for one of the three services, Army, Navy or Air Force, whereas in the First World War, really, there'd been no choice except the Army. And secondly, men could volunteer ahead of the time due according to their age group. So this had a very important effect that it meant that a lot of people stepped forward ahead of their time and it meant their choice was more likely to be respected. And throughout the war years, you had more people applying to join the Air Force and the Navy than the Army. Although in numerical terms, something like three-fifths of the total armed services were in the Army. But uh, not as many people of that volunteered. And so which meant that the Army, the Navy and the Air Force could pick and choose the best men they wanted. And it left the Army with probably the least educated, perhaps not always the, and, and often the, the uh, physically uh, le le less adequate, and if you like, the, the, the people who couldn't avoid anything else. So a lot of bright, able, healthy people joined the Air Force, and the, though, of course, if you were air crew, the fatality rate was extremely high, particularly in Bomber Command, something like nearly nearly over 45, something about 45% overall. Uh, if you were in ground crew RAF, you um, were pretty safe. Very few ground crew, 
crew, in fact, were killed, though obviously when airfields were bombed, they did. The Navy was not quite so, but it meant that particularly after 1944, uh, after D-Day, when the rate of casualties had been underestimated, and it was underestimated also by the Canadians and Americans, uh, there was a very acute shortage of infantrymen. So that was a lesson, if you like, learnt at the popular level, try and get in the Air Force or the Navy. It may not be very heroic, but it was a reality and understandable when so many people had been, without doubt, needlessly sacrificed in Flanders. They must at some point put their foot down and just say, look, enough's enough, we don't need any more for the RF, you're all going into the army. Well, only in in the summer of 1944, August 44, you know, that's say a couple of months after D-Day, and the breakout from, from Normandy, of course, from the beachhead was it took much longer than was expected. It took um, over two months. And, of course, two and, it was two and a half months after D-Day before Paris was liberated, for example. It was a very hard slog. The Germans, uh, despite all the uh, uh, diversionary plans and so on, the, the Germans recovered remarkably quickly in their defence. And that's when you started having men being transferred out of the Navy and out of the uh, Air Force in late summer, autumn of 44, and again the following year, early in the, in 45. But it, it wasn't, it was something like um, 40, 40 or 50,000 men, not an enormous number in the circumstances. In, in 44, um, there was a report within the Air Ministry saying that a lot of people, uh, a lot of men are volunteering for air crew and then deliberately failing their tests, whether they were gunners or pilots, which men then became ground crew, uh, unless possibly they were amongst those who were transferred out to the army. You know, the problem of, of uh, air crew morale, of course, was extremely uh, acute in in, um, in bomber command with these very, very heavy losses. So quite early in the war, we have a huge number of, of men i think is it 1.5 million men by sort of sometime in 1940 under arms it's just an extraordinary figure and i wonder if such a rapid expansion of the army ended up with a lot of square pegs in round holes certainly at the early early part of the war the you know the, the brown pegs and the uh, the square holes were very uh, uh, very obvious um but it was only really in 50, 40 you know by 41 42 when proper selection of personnel and of officers was introduced under, um, under General Adam, who was the Adjutant General. That question of batching abilities to needs was in any way approached. It couldn't, of course, be an absolutely 100%, um, but it was greatly improved. And certainly in 1940, after Dunkirk, a very large number of men were called up to fill out 120 new battalions. And the army authorities objected to this, but Churchill insisted because he this has got to demonstrate not only to the British, but to Americans and others that Britain was going to resist. And so you had this business of a, a, a very large number of men being called up to the army, really without equipment, without um, training facilities and finding adequate um, you know, training staff was very difficult. But gradually, as... Uh, heavier weapons became available, artillery, tanks, and so on. A lot of these people who were pushed into the infantry in, in 1940 were then you know, trained on for other arms as the equipment became available. There must have been a, a lot of green officers with such an expansion of the army. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and, and um, the selection um, procedure for officers was basically you know, uh, 
to a large degree what it had been, or still even even towards the end of the First World War, of you know the right sort of chap who'd been to the right sort of school and uh, played the right sort of games. Um, you know, you want wanted they wanted rugger players, not soccer, not, not soccer players, <laughs> in a sense, um, uh, which meant all sorts of. Um, uh, people whose parents had had the money to send them, you know, to private education, were assumed to be officer-like material, and they weren't, and they didn't want to become officers. The, there's a very good book by, um, oh, what's his name? The, the Recollections of Rifleman Dolby, is it? I can't remember, but he was Bowlby, a Rifleman Bowlby. He was a public school boy who went into the uh, one of the, one of the um, rifle regiments and re- const- absolutely refused to. Um, take a commission or put in for one it was which was deeply embarrassing for the officers of some of whom have certainly not necessarily been at school with him but felt he was letting the class down and he wrote this very um well not a, a informative and also but entertaining book about life in the uh, as, a, as a rifleman in italy was conscription popular in britain had they had the public foreseen it coming well certainly during the 30s both baldwin and Chamberlain, when prime minister, said, no, no, there'll be no conscription in, in peacetime. And, and that was extremely popular and it was would have been very difficult politically to get it through, except after the Germans occupied the whole of Czechoslovakia in 1939, Chamberlain decided that they must, must bring in a conscription, not least to persuade the French that the British were being serious about resisting Germany. And he's, he justified his change of re- total reversal of policy by saying, well, we're not at war, but we're not at, we can't say that we're at peace either. And that's when um, in May of 39, conscription came in for what was intended to be six months training in the uh, what they call the uh, revived militia. But by the time they'd got 34,000 men together in this militia in July 39, they only, were only six weeks through their six months of training before full conscription came in. And, and a lot of the, or some of those, certainly, um, of those militia men finished up in France in 1940 and spent the rest of the war as prisoners. And, of course, a lot of regulars and territorials as well. You know, that we're aware of the 200,000 British and the 100,000 French who got away at Dunkirk. But there were um, something like 40,000 uh, British and a great many more French who were either captured or, or killed in the 1940 campaign. The French, I mean, the French losses were very considerable. The British sort of popular imagination thinks the French just threw in their hands. They didn't extremely, extremely bravely and courageously uh, against uh, a far superior enemy. So it's it's a wonderful image, uh, you know, cartoon image in the Evening Standard in June 1944 of the, you know, the the Tommy shaking his fist at the English Channel and you know, shouting very well alone. But it's far from true, is it? Absolutely, I think the this is a uh, British rather congratulating themselves. I mean, not only were there a lot of Poles, Czechs, and uh, other Europeans in the Air Force in in nineteen you know summer in in fighter command, but a lot of Commonwealth people, particularly New Zealanders, because the New Zealand Air Force was um, very small and they'd sent a lot of people, as had the Australians, to Britain for training. And so they were available. About one in five of the Battle of Britain fighter pilots were were non UK. And of course later in the war, I mean the, the manpower in India, in Africa 
was was mobilized to a very you know very high level quite a highish level and without certainly without uh, the commonwealth forces um, britain could not would not have could not have continued even though it took a long time for the uh, war potential to be uh, mobilized in in the other parts of the commonwealth and empire by the end of the war canada was for example particularly canada had industrialized to extraordinary you know was producing bomber aircraft uh, you know lancasters and 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 mosquitoes and also tanks armored other armored vehicles on a very high you know quite a high level Australia to a perhaps a lesser extent, but then at the, towards the end of the war, I mean, uh, the of conscription had lots of problems um, outside Britain. There were, of course, you know, quite a few conscience objectors who, in the Second World War, were were treated rather more respectfully, and it was rec- and they did quite useful work, not least as um, stretcher bearers, which was, was a far more risky job than 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 many other fully trained. Uh, soldiers were actually doing but the new zealanders had a conscription without any problems there were difficulties in canada largely with the french uh, speakers who were unwilling or reluctant to take part in what they thought was a, not a canadian war south africa of course with the afrikaners and never quite an element who were very pro nazi and in australia there were the other problems of uh, they had a long standing tradition of not sending conscripts overseas which was only volunteers should go overseas and that caused problems once the japanese were coming over the horizon in 1942 where did home defense end some australian conscripts did finish up in new guinea and other parts of the you know south pacific and why do you think some of these i mean certainly canada and new zealand uh, can be singled out for almost back in britain to the hilt almost unconditionally why do you think it was. I mean, initially, of course, they were, all the Dominions were much more reluctant to fight than they had been in 1914. By 1939, like the British, or French, or Germans, for that matter, knew, knew what was involved. And so had much less enthusiasm for joining up. And, uh, you know, when you're stuck, you know, in the way in the middle of the Canadian prairies, well, Europe's a long way away. In Australia, of course, you had a long-standing tradition or sentiment of rebelliousness dating dating back to the transportation of convicts. In Australia, you've got this sort of authoritarian element of in, in, in psychology and in, in, in the society, but also you've got this rebellious element. And that was, you know, not wanting to be pushed around by, you know, the boss class. Did the British Army um, press or the British military press for the uh, Empire forces to be fall within the British Army umbrella, the British military umbrella? Yes, I think. And one of the complaints in both wars was that the British tended to look upon the, the you know, if you like, the Dominion and plus and the Indians and other, if you like, colonial forces as if they were part of the British army. But even in, in the First World War, the Australians and Canadians had in, in France had insisted they should have a Canadian corps and a, an Australian corps who would, although over un, under overall British command, would nonetheless fight as a single Canadian uh, Australian corps. And you had it to, uh, and that was taken, of course, that, if you like, lesson was learnt by the British High Command. And so in 1944, for example, I mean, indeed earlier, in the second, you had a Canadian army, the second Canadian army in, in Normandy and through northwest Europe. And the Australians at least had in the Western Desert, and New Zealanders had separate di- uh, divisions. They were, uh, you know, resisting being incorporated 
into British, if you like, formations, though they often depended on British um, rear echelon support forces to you know, keep the men in the front line uh, supplied and reinforced. Yeah, that was different for the RAF. Were they, they were all they were all uh, encompassed within the RAF. Is that right? Well, in in practice, yes. But in fact, you you had in, in for example both bomber, bomber command and fighter command in, in in Europe. You had what were considered to be Australian squadrons or Canadian squadrons or New Zealand squadrons, but they weren't necessarily all Canadians, Australian, New Zealanders who, who served in those squadrons. You 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 found a say a navigator or gunner or whatever it might be. You've you've had to fill in with the appropriate skill, whatever the origin. So you did have what were nominally Australian or nominally British squadrons had a mixture of um, personnel, as, of course, you'd had from the very start of the First World War in the sense of having to put into the county regiments in England or in, in Scotland, for that matter, you had to put in men, whatever their origin. So there were Yorkshiremen serving in the Wiltshire Regiment, for example, from a very early time. And as the war went on, the reinforcements became more and more varied in their geographical origin within the UK. I, just, I find it curious that you know, they, they, they push for their ground forces to be separate, yet they're seemingly happy for them to sort of fall under the RAF, as the RAF. They weren't necessarily happy because the Canadians in Bomber Command in particular, they thought that all pilots and navigators should be commissioned officers, whereas the British had sergeant pilots who was in command. And even if his navigator was a commit, had, uh, was an officer, he was under the officer was the navigator officer was under the command of the pilot. And, and the Canadians pressed hard that all air, all, if you like, the senior air crew or the skilled air crew should be commissioned. Again, you know, this was resisted by um, by the British, by the RAF which again, which was much less prone to take give commissions to people on a sort of, if you like, a class basis. Um, because whatever school you'd been to, if you couldn't fly a plane, you weren't any good. It was, it was a much, if you like, a much more demanding, a much more skilled standard amongst, amongst their officers who, who had to have obviously have a, a, a very considerable technical ability, which wasn't necessary so much in say, the infantry or uh, other, some of, of the army. Had, had there been any discussion in the interwar years with the Empire on how, if uh, a future cl- conflict erupted, how they might recruit? I mean, presumably you'd only really need to talk to the Dominions because the rest of the Empire would sort of fall under London, direct London control. Yes, I think the Dominions, even more than the British, after, after uh, the end of the First World War, were, well, we, want any, we don't want anything more to do with that. We're finished, that all we forgetting it and so there was very little and inadequate um, coordination even at sort of staff level uh, with the uh, dominions who let their um, own armed forces you know dwindle back to a very small numbers whereas of course the British always had relative terms anyway a biggish professional army because it was the main army the main job of the British army of course was to police the police the empire and of course the navy too that was a, a worldwide service, and so that there were there was a professional class of, of, of in the in the military, in the navy, and the air force. To a lesser extent, the air force, of course, being a new arm. The uh, then you had in in um, 
Australia or Canada, where you had maybe a total regular army of three or four thousand men. It was hardly, um, you know, it was it was it wasn't a much of a career a channel to go to. And if you were, whereas you know, and in the British Army, you could maybe uh, get secondment to one of the colonial forces, or you could either permanently or on a, a seconded basis, perhaps go to go to India for some years. I was going. I was going to ask about South Africa because that's an interesting one because obviously you mentioned already that it was sort of uh, split in in various ways. Certainly the the white communities split between the Afrikaans and the uh, sort of the the British whites. Did they introduce any form of conscription? Because there was South African uh, troops, certainly in North Africa, wasn't there? Before the First World War, they had brought in conscription of a a fairly limited sort of uh, few... Months training for all all white males that broke down because outbreak of the First World War the the um, some of the Afrikaners connived and revolted and um, connived with the with the German invasion from Southwest Africa so that conscription was dropped because you could I mean, if you, if they reintroduced it during the war in the Second World War it was situation was much the same so it relied on white volunteers quite a few of whom were um, Afrikaans-speaking, because it's not simply the British against the Afrikaners at all. It's, it's a much more complicated um, situation than that. In the First World War, the South African government did recruit a Cape-coloured corps of people of mixed race from the Cape who were trained in weaponry, were given infantry training, and served both in East Africa and also in Palestine. Uh, and, and but the interwar years, the sort of racial divides that had, had become much more formalised. Uh, although they recruited quite a few coloured people and, and and black Africans into Second World War, they were not given any military uh, arms training. The, the British, of course, British colonials were recruiting people in Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda and Nigeria and so on, um, and and training them as almost entirely, not entirely, but mainly as infantry. And um, two West African and one West Indi- East East African divisions served in Burma. But the the South African government, which of course was uh, in the Second World War, was led by um, Jans, uh, Jan Schmutz, who of course had, in 1902 had been fighting against the British. He uh, was not the most extreme, you know, if you like, racist. Um, but um, nonetheless, the idea of giving weapons training to non-whites in the, by 1939 was considered to be, you know, much too dangerous. It, it, it's curious that that, uh, that the pro-Nazi um, element in South Africa suddenly reading that took me back to um, it's called in Alex, isn't it? Where it, I, although I think he's, he's a German acting as a South African. Um, oh, it was Anthony. Um, Anthony Quill. Yes, who was supposedly a South African. But, uh, an Afrikaner, but he was a German. That's right. Yes, I don't know whether there is any sort of factual basis for that or not. You mentioned uh, recruitment in Africa, uh, and I thought it was a, a great quote in the book, "The Forgotten Wing of the Forgotten Army," in reference to them being sent to uh, I- I- into Burma. Um, how were they recruited? Or oh, the Afri- the black Africans, if you like. Yeah, because presumably they're under direct control from London. The um, British and, and indeed the French and you know the other European powers once they are. Uh, had conquered their different bits of Africa, they started recruiting people um, you know, from what they considered to be the uh, the martial 
tribes or the martial races. The same attitude is in India, you know, that they sort of said, well, these sort of people are good fighters um, and those aren't. And uh, the, the curious thing, of course, was that both in India and in Africa, it was often the people who had been the most recently conquered by the, by the Europeans, who in fact were the most warlike and were therefore very rapidly recruited. Um, there's all sorts of reasons, but I think much, you know, the, a significant element in recruiting African and Indian armies, whether in peace or war, was hunger. Hunger was always the great recruiter. You know, you, you got regular pay, you got regular food, you got regular clothing, and so on, as it was, of course, in Ireland in the 19th century, and indeed in Scotland. But then, of course, you also had in India a, you know, the, it, there was a strong bias in the British administration in favour of, of Muslims rather than Hindus, because Muslims were considered to be more warlike, and because they were mainly in northwest uh, India, which is now Pakistan, they were they were indeed more warlike. But the most interesting change in the Indian Army during the Second World War was that the demands of a modern army for mechanics, for people who understand who who, who understood radio or who could be trained. In, in these these more advanced skills were often townspeople eastern India from from Madras or Chennai as it now is and often okay, so there's a great swing towards recruiting Hindus who previously had been rather despised by the British as being an you know, passive pacifist and so on and the traditional people from Punjab or Northwest were less in demand because the the, new, the, arm, the army was um, needed new skills. And the same to a considerable extent, um, perhaps a lesser extent, but nonetheless importantly in, in Africa. For example, the Kikuyu in Kenya, who were rather better educated than a lot of the local people. Um, therefore, they didn't, they were perhaps less susceptible to discipline. They had to be recruited in the Second World War because they had the mechanical or had the literacy skills um, which um, some of the traditional fighting tribes didn't have and you've got the same sort of thing in, to some extent in, in West, East, uh, West Africa as well in, in Nigeria you know there was a very important social change um, came about as a result of that, both in, in India and in Africa And in India, if we, if we look at India they, they so the Indian Army, the Indians didn't have to introduce conscription, did they? Oh, they didn't introduce conscription. No, 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 no. I mean, people were conscripted in, in Africa, where the um, white settlers in, in um, Rhodesia and in, in Kenya, for example, they, they were subject to um, uh, in the conscription. And so were uh, young white men living in India, young Europeans. And they were normally, um, because they uh, probably spoke one or more of the local languages, they were, they were usually um, commissioned in, in, the, um, in the Indian or African armies as, 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 as required. No, this is, is in, in Africa, though, there were, was conscription or, if you like, um, uh, conscripted labour in Rhodesia and in parts of West Africa and in East Africa for works concerned in the connected to the part to to the to the army building you know army barracks for example or defensive works or something like that and and labor was recruited if you like in or conscripted for that 
Um, and apart from that, some of the Indians living in East Africa were conscripted into sort of um, rear echelon work in the army was because they were they were literate in English and they could become clerks or radio operators and so on. There was no general conscription, except, of course, that the authorities would go to the elders of a particular tribe and say, we want 55 men or 500 men and 500 men would appear. So there was informal conscription, very different in India. But it was never you know, really formalised. So the Indian Army, I think, right, say, would become the largest volunteer army of the war with two point five million. Yes, two and a half million. Yes, um, which is an incredible but, figure. Well, it's it's always called to be a two and the largest voluntary army, but with all these social and economic pressures, how voluntary were they? I mean, I always I think really that the distinction between conscripts and, and volunteers is often very, very blurred. You got the same thing in the beginning of the First World War in in Britain. There was a big uh, rise in unemployment almost immediately after war broke out. All sorts of civilian jobs vanished. So a lot of people joined up because they needed the work. The distinction between volunteers and conscripts is, is, is often uh, more theoretical than real. In India, if you're only conscripting the white community and presumably they will become the officer class uh, presumably the, they would run out of white recruits to officer the Indian army at uh, uh, that size oh yes I mean and a lot of a lot of um, British people were sent out as office to be to officer the um, Indian army but they were rather looked down on by the regular British Indian Army people, because anyway, they didn't necessarily have, they didn't have, first of all, they didn't have the local languages, which which inhibited and limited their effectiveness. And also they were often felt to be, um, have unfortunate sort of egalitarian attitudes. They were imbued with um, the right, right sort of attitudes of, of, the, of the, you know, the superior whites to the natives, even though if the word native was perhaps uh, going out of use. I mean, the attitudes were still fairly firm amongst um, quite a lot of um, British in India. Not only was the uh, Indian army expanded to include far more Hindus, but it took in very large numbers of um, British officers um, from the UK and also a lot of um, NCOs as uh, technical armourers, mechanics, people from uh, Remy and and, uh, similar skilled cause which um, the Indian army or the Indian population couldn't produce. Did they also with, uh, draw on their own uh, for Indians as officers? Surely they must have been internally promoted. Oh yeah, before the war, between the two wars. First of all, the um, Indian star, um, cadet scheme uh, uh, um, uh, was a, a military academy was established, Derrida Dunn, and also a, f- a few every year Indian Officers were sent to UK for um, um, for training, but it was a very slow business. There weren't, you know, you know, there wasn't a handful by the by the end of the 30s. So only a handful of of Indian commissioned officers. That was quite uh, extensively extended during the war, but for political reasons, it was often very difficult to get uh, Indians of, if you like, officer quality. Um, because there was a you know, quite a resistance that why should they join an army and fight to defend the British Empire, which they wanted to get rid of. A lot of like middle class Indians resistant to the idea of joining the army, which was considered. It's incredible that their you know, their contribution to the war 
you know, certainly numbers is so huge yet you know this the western narrative of the war we don't hear much about their uh, contribution at all well you know in 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 north africa and in uh, italy the indians were you know, extremely important as they'd been of course very important in the first world war in mesopotamia and in palestine against the turks in the second world war it was of course the, their main adversary certainly even the second half of the war was against the japanese and without the indian army resisting the Japanese in Burma. I mean, the, you know, the whole of it, India would have been, been probably overrun. The, the majority of the, if you like, the British, British commanded forces in Burma were Indian. As I mentioned, those three African divisions, which are even more overlooked, almost entirely disregarded. Mm. But I think it wasn't slim uh, Indian army. Yes. Yeah. I should have looked that up before I started. I thought mm. it was. I mean, at the end of the book, you point out that Britain had the legal power to conscript 50 million more men than it actually did, which I was staggered by. I mean, I know the British big power is big. I thought put that in because, you know, at the beginning of the war, all the colonial governments, colonial doesn't mean India, or obviously Dominion in this, all the colonial governments, you know, from, from British Honduras to Nigeria through to the um, Fiji or wherever in the South Pacific, they, they all came under a... Um, uh, an ordinance that, um, you know, if necessary, the, the the governors could request powers to enlist, uh, to could conscript. Um, in fact, very few did. Uh, Malta, yes, because Malta, of course, spent three years under very, very direct um, attack from Germany and Italy. Um, Bermuda also, although it had was garrisoned by Canadians and British, it also had... Um, Two local regiments, because it was, you know, quite, you know, quite would have been quite easy for half a dozen U-boats to land sort of sabotage crews and destroy the communications, which are of course extremely important in Bermuda. Similar situation in Mauritius, where uh, there was some conscription introduced, uh, but a lot of uh, Mauritians were employed um, in tail jobs in the British Army in the Middle East, because again they were often, you know, very literate in English. And so they could, you know, do clerical jobs or you know, that sort of uh, support services, which um, and freeing British um, UK um, forces for the front line. And some some Mauritian conscripts were sent to Madagascar after the um, Allies or the British, really, the British and South Africans occupied it. It was Vichy French, of course, but there was you know, risk of the a Japanese um, invasion. I, th- I think the best example you, you you point out in the book of the the uh, British not really standing alone is, is Alamein, where there's I think it's is it four UK divisions, one Australian, two Indian, two South African, two African, and the New Zealanders. Um, and it's a perfect example of how we did we really didn't yeah. stand alone. <laughs> It doesn't mean to say that the, the you know as I mentioned earlier, that the New Zealand division was exclusively New Zealand. You know there were as I mentioned you know, there were quite a lot of other, particularly in support service, British, um, Palestinian, uh, both Muslims, Christians, and Jews, for example, um, Cypriots um, and others who were doing doing, you know, doing these sort of real echelon jobs. So that um, just as 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 in both world, you know, certainly the First World War, the you know the British in France were providing. Rear, rear echelon jobs for um, the Canadians, Australians, in certainly the First World War, because the physical quality of so many of the British conscripts, particularly towards the end of the war, when they were dragging anybody in, they could do these um, uh, rear echelon jobs and freeing the these much healthier 
and fitter and uh, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders for the front line, where, of course, they suffered very high casualties. Which is presumably why my great-grandfather was conscripted um, age 40. He was a horseman and he was originally put in the Pioneer Corps and then became in the Labour Corps. So presumably at that age they thought he was could be put to better use uh, behind the lines. You know, compared with, with, with uh, in the First World War, you had, well, partly because of the nature of the war in France, but 70% of the British army were, were, were infantry. doesn't necessarily mean they're in the front line with a, with a gun, but nonetheless they were in, they were in the infantry. Beginning of the Second World War, that was down to about 40%. It went up to 50% in, in, in 1940 when all these men were rushed into the army with, and, uh, and could only be given infantry training. Um, but the, the percentage of infantry fell off to about 30% by the end of the war. Uh, this was characteristic also, of course, of the uh, American army as well. But, you know, they, more and more heavy equipment came in. And, of course, the more and more heavy equipment you have, the more you have to have people concerned with, you know, resupply of, of ammunition or resupply of, of petrol or whatever. And, of course, repairing armoured vehicles so that the, the uh, proportion of, of men in the teeth arms was falling because the mo- increasingly the modern army of the time um, and one saw this big change, even though in four or five years, um, re- required um, uh, these, these skills, higher, you know, greater uh, mechanical skills. Yeah, well, the Royal Army Service Corps ballooned during the Second World War. I have a feeling it was around 250,000 men in 44, 45. Certainly in Northwest Europe, um, when they were bringing all the supplies up from Normandy and into Belgium, it, it would have taken an enormous amount of manpower. Um, I think, Roger, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank, thank you for talking to me. Volunteers and Pressed Men by Roger Broad is available now. I'll put a link on the website. It's worth a read. It certainly sheds some light and understanding on some of my own family history. So, to the big giveaway. I have a copy of the West Point History of World War II to give away. It's a sumptuous book with contributions from some excellent military historians and the foreword is by Henry Kissinger. What I've decided to do is reward supporters of the show by putting their names in a hat. The name that comes out will get the book. Simple. To get your name in the hat, you have to have shown your support for the show by either Patreon or the support page and PayPal on the website. If you're an existing supporter, you don't have to do anything. If you want a chance to be in the draw, all is not lost. You have until the 28th of February 2017 to become a supporter and I'll draw the name after that. I've no doubt the winner will be very pleased. It's a fabulous book. So that's patreon.com slash ww2podcast or ww2podcast for other options on how you can show your support for the show. I think that's it for now. If you're expecting a look at the Ryan Crossings in this episode, I've had a bit of a shuffle about. I seem to have had quite a lot come up and I thought I'd slip it in probably in a month, maybe two. We'll see. I'm Angus Wallace and thanks for listening. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? (laughs) 
Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.